If your happy ending is no more joint pain, please try Sierra Sil with a money-back guarantee. It's all-natural joint pain relief that's changed our lives. Sierra, like the mountains, and Sil, like silicon. Go to sierrasil.com. Use the code DRIFT for 10% off. Hello, I'm Erin, and welcome to Drift. Here we share classic stories, plus a few you may not have heard, which is wonderful too. And it's all to put you gently to sleep. Now, this tale tonight is one I first saw on a big screen when I was a Lilliputian myself. (laughs) Just a little girl. About a sailor and his adventures on a faraway island filled with teeny tiny people. It's Gulliver's Travels. A Voyage to Lilliput by Jonathan Swift. And this story is well worth hearing in two parts. Now, if you drift off before the end of this first half of the sleep story, not to worry. In part two, I'll recap for you where we left off. And hopefully, we'll help you to hear all of this wonderful tale. We'll get to Gulliver's Travels after a few thoughts about a pillow that I rest my head on every night and have for years Envy Pillow is the creation of Kathy and Kim, best friends and two RNs, who have focused not only on beauty and sleep lines, but on neck support, copper infusion for protection from microbes, the greenest components, and so much more. I believe in Envy Pillow, and so do they. If you don't love yours, return it within 90 days for a full refund and they'll clean and donate yours to a shelter. Learn more in the morning at EnvyPillow, E-N-V-Y-Pillow.com and get 10% off anything you love by using the code word DRIFT. Before we get into Gulliver's Travels, let us fully relax and prepare to receive. I'd like you now to start with a deep breath. Take it in nice and slowly, holding, and now releasing again slowly, letting go of all the day as you do. And now another cleansing breath in, and hold, and release. Let's get that message to your entire body. Starting at the top of that busy head of yours, let your head rest heavy on your pillow your chair back, wherever you are. Make sure you feel a complete release now in your neck. No more work there, hmm? And now your shoulders. Are they down? Let them drop as far as you are able. Now feel the relaxation spreading down your arms, your elbows, your forearms. Let your wrists be limp and your fingers idle. Good. Keep your mind on your breath again in and out as we raise your chest and let it fall. Feel that beautiful moment. To your belly, let it fill with air and then deflate down, down. 
Are your hips and sit bones feeling like dead weight where you are? Let them do just that. Now, finally, to your legs. They are heavy, sinking into the mattress or chair or floor. Your entire leg doing just that, both legs and your feet. Flex them now once and again and then let go. And just as we begin our story, take one more deep breath and think these words as you exhale. Really take them in. I am safe. I am loved. I am at peace. And if you're ready, let's drift. And now to Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, Part 1. Chapter 1. My father had a small estate in Nottinghamshire, and I was the third of four sons. He sent me to Cambridge at fourteen years old, and after studying there three years, I was bound apprentice to Mr. Bates, a famous surgeon in London. There, as my father now and then sent me small sums of money, I spent them in learning navigation and other arts useful to those who travel. As I always believed it would be some time or other my fortune to do. Three years after leaving my good master, Mr. Bates recommended me as ship's surgeon to the Swallow, on which I voyaged three years. When I came back, I settled in London and married Miss Mary Burton. But I determined to go again to sea. After several voyages, I accepted an offer from Captain W. Pritchard, Master of the Antelope, who was making a voyage to the South Sea. We set sail from Bristol, May 1699, and our voyage at first was very prosperous. But in our passage to the East Indies, we were driven by a violent storm to the northwest on Van Diemen's Land. Our crew was in a very weak condition. On the 5th of November, our ship was driven upon a rock and immediately split. Six of the crew, of whom I was one, letting down the boat, got clear of the ship, and we rowed till the boat was upset by a sudden squall. My companions were all lost. For my part, I swam forward pushed by wind and tide. I reached the shore at last, about eight o'clock in the evening, and advanced nearly half a mile inland, but could not discover any signs of inhabitants. I was extremely tired, and I lay down on the soft, short grass and slept sounder than ever I did in my life for about nine hours. When I woke, it was just daylight. I attempted to rise, but could not. Lying on my back, I found my arms and legs fastened on each side to the ground, and my hair, which was long and thick, tied down in the same manner. I could only look upward. The sun began to grow hot, and the light 
hurt my eyes. I heard a confused noise about me, but could see nothing except the sky. In a little time, I felt something alive and moving on my left leg, which, advancing gently over my chest, came almost up to my chin. When, bending my eyes downward, I perceived it to be a human creature, not six inches high, with a bow and arrow in his hands and a quiver at his back. In the meantime, I felt at least forty more following the first. I was in the utmost astonishment and roared so loud that they all ran back in fright, and some of them were hurt with the falls that they got by leaping from my sides upon the ground. However, they soon returned, and one of them, who ventured so far as to get a full sight of my face, lifted up his hands in admiration. I was greatly uneasy, but at length, struggling to get loose, I succeeded in breaking the strings that fastened my left arm to the ground, and at the same time, with a violent, painful pull, I slightly loosened the strings that tied down my hair, so that I was just able to turn my head about two inches. But the creatures ran off a second time, and there was a great shout. In an instant, I felt a hundred arrows on my left hand, which pricked me like so many needles. Then they shot another flight into the air, of which some fell on my face, which I immediately covered with my left hand. I groaned with pain, and then, striving again to get loose, they discharged another flight of arrows, larger than the first, and some of them tried to stab me with their spears. But by good luck, I had on a leather jacket, which they could not pierce. By this time, I thought it most prudent to lie still till night, when my left hand, being already loose, I could easily free myself. When the people observed that I was quiet, they discharged no more arrows, but by the noise I heard, I knew that their number was increased. And about four yards from me, for more than an hour, there was the knocking, like people at work. Turning my head that way as well as the pegs and strings would let me, I saw a stage set up about a foot and a half from the ground, with two or three ladders to mount it. From this, one of them, who seemed to be a person of quality, made me a long speech, and though I could not understand a word, I could tell from his manner that he sometimes threatened me and sometimes spoke with pity and kindness. I answered in the most submissive manner, and I could not help showing my hunger by putting my finger frequently to my mouth. He understood me very well, and, descending from the stage, commanded that several ladders should be set against my sides, on which more than a hundred of the inhabitants mounted and walked toward my mouth with baskets full of food, which had been sent by the king's orders when he first heard of me. 
There were legs and shoulders like mutton, but smaller than the wings of a bird. I ate them two or three at a mouthful, and took three loaves at a time. They supplied me as fast as they could in wonder at my appetite. I then made a sign that I wanted something to drink. Being a most ingenious people, they slung up one of their largest casks, then rolled it toward my hand and beat out the top. I drank it in a gulp, for it did not hold half a pint of wine. They brought me a second cask, which I drank, and made signs for more, but they had none to give me. After some time there appeared before me a person of high rank from His Imperial Majesty. His Excellency commanded that I should be taken to the capital city. I made a sign that I desired my liberty. He seemed to understand me well enough, for he shook his head, though he made other signs to let me know that I should have meat and drink enough and very good treatment. Then I once more thought of attempting to escape, but when I felt the smart of their arrows on my face and hands and saw that the number of my enemies increased, I let them know that they might do with me what they pleased. They daubed my face and hands with a sweet-smelling ointment, which in a few minutes removed all the smarts of the arrows. The relief from pain and hunger made me drowsy, and soon I fell asleep. I slept about eight hours, and it was no wonder, for I later learned that on Emperor's orders a sleeping powder had been mixed in the wine. Meantime, five hundred carpenters and engineers had been set to work constructing a frame of wood raised three inches from the ground, about seven feet long and four wide, moving upon twenty-two wheels. But the difficulty was to place me on it. Eighty poles were erected for this purpose, and very strong cords fastened to bandages, which the workmen had tied round my neck, hands, body, and legs. Nine hundred of the strongest men drew up these cords by pulleys fastened on the poles, and in about three hours I was raised and slung into the cart and tied there fast. Fifteen hundred of the emperor's largest horses, each about four and a half inches high, then pulled me toward the capital. But while all this was done, I still lay in a deep sleep, and I did not wait till four hours after we began our journey. The emperor and all his court came out to meet us when we reached the capital. Where the carriage stopped stood an ancient temple, supposed to be the largest in the whole kingdom, and here it was determined that I should lodge. Near the great gate, through which I could easily creep, they fixed ninety-one chains, like those which hanged to a lady's watch, which were locked to my left leg with thirty-six padlocks, and when the workmen found it was impossible for me to break loose, they cut all the strings that bound me. Then I rose up 
feeling as melancholy as ever I did in my life. But the noise and astonishment of the people on seeing me rise and walk were inexpressible. The chains that held my left leg were about two yards long and gave me not only freedom to walk backward and forward in a semicircle, but to creep in and stretch out at full length inside the temple. The emperor surveyed me with great admiration, but kept beyond the length of my chain. He was taller by about the breadth of my nail than any of his court, and majestic and graceful. He wore a light helmet of gold adorned with jewels and a plume. He held his sword drawn in his hand to defend himself if I should ever break loose. It was almost three inches long, and the hilt was of gold enriched with diamonds. His voice was shrill but very clear. His imperial majesty spoke often to me, and I answered, but neither of us could understand a word. Chapter 2 After about two hours the court retired, and I was left with a strong guard to keep away the crowd. Toward night I had some difficulty getting into my house, where I lay on the ground, as I had to do for two weeks, till a bed was prepared for me, out of six hundred beds of the ordinary measure. Six hundred servants were appointed to me, and three hundred tailors made me a suit of clothes. Moreover, six of His Majesty's greatest scholars were employed to teach me their language, so that soon I was able to converse, after a fashion, with the emperor, who often honored me with his visits. The first words I learned were to ask for my release, which I every day repeated on my knees. But he answered that this must take time, and that first I must swear a peace with him and his kingdom. He told me also that I must be searched by two of his officers, and that, as this could not be done without my help, he trusted them in my hands, and whatever they took from me should be returned when I left the country. I took up the two officers and put them into my coat pockets. These gentlemen, having pen, ink, and paper about them, made an exact list of everything they saw. Now I had one private pocket, which escaped their search, containing a pair of spectacles and a small spyglass, which were of no consequence to the emperor. Chapter 3 Through my gentleness and good behavior, I began to hope that I would soon be freed. The natives came to be less fearful of danger from me. I would sometimes lie down and let five or six of them dance on my hand. And at last the boys and girls ventured to come and play at hide-and-seek in my hair. I had sent so many petitions for my liberty that His Majesty finally raised the matter in council, where it was opposed by none except 
Skyresh Bolgolam, admiral of the realm, who was pleased, without any provocation, to be my mortal enemy. However, he agreed, after drawing up the conditions on which I should be set free. I have made a translation of the conditions which I here offer to you. Most mighty emperor of Lilliput, delight and terror of the universe, whose dominions extend to the ends of the globe, monarch of all monarchs, proposes to the man-mountain the following articles, which, by a solemn oath, he shall be obliged to perform. First, the man-mountain shall not depart from our dominions without our permission under the great seal. Second, he shall not presume to come into our metropolis without our express order, at which time the inhabitants will have two hours' warning to stay indoors. Third, the said man-mountain shall confine his walks to our principal high roads, and not walk or lie down in a meadow or field of corn. Fourth, as he walks the said roads, he shall take the utmost care not to trample upon any of our loving subjects, their horses or carriages, nor take any of our subjects into his hands without their own consent. Fifth, he shall be our ally against our enemies in the island of Blefuscu, and do his utmost to destroy their fleet, which is now preparing to invade us. Lastly, upon his solemn oath to observe all the above articles, the said man-mountain shall have a daily allowance of meat and drink sufficient for the support of 1,724 of our subjects with free access to our royal person and other marks of our favor. Given at our palace at Belfaburac, the twelfth day of the ninety-first moon of our reign. I swore to these articles with great cheerfulness, whereupon my chains were immediately unlocked, and I was at full liberty. One morning, about two weeks after I had obtained my freedom, Weldrasol, the emperor's secretary for private affairs, came to my house asking that I would give him an hour's audience. As I held him in my hand, he said, We are in danger of an invasion from the island of Blefuscu, which is the other great empire of the universe, almost as large and as powerful as this of his majesty. We are engaged in a most obstinate and bloody war, which has been carried on between the two empires for thirty-six moons. And now the Blefuscudians have equipped a large fleet and are preparing to descend upon us. Therefore, his imperial majesty, placing great confidence in your valor and strength, has commanded me to set the case before you. I told the secretary to let him know that I was ready, at the risk of my life, to defend him against all invaders. And there we shall leave you for now, my beautiful dreamer, as we look out and imagine the tides that brought Gulliver to this island, and these people 
who bear grudges far larger than themselves. And we will pick up with part two in our next podcast. So for now, drift off and sweet dreams. <laughs>